And I have found the best way to get rid of anybody is to say, well, if you write it for me, I'll publish it. <laughs> and the amount of people that won't bother you anymore. And unfortunately or fortunately, the person that I said that to came back within 24 hours. <laughs> it's something about 170 words. It was... Uh -huh. And it was, to my mind, it's always known as the urgent post. That was the uh, no, urgent, and it went from there. And things moved pretty fast after that. Um, hmm. flagged up for you by colleagues and peers and stuff but I mean did you did you have a chance before this person gave you this to actually figure out if there was actually any kind of you know in your eyes um, substance to these claims you know even trusting you know the people who uh, were talking to you was there a kind of um, a time at which you went uh, I don't uh, let me check this up I mean could you <laughs> you know I am um, I if I was going back over it again I'd be a little more cautious mm -hmm. but for all that the the people that were talking to me I trust them implicitly I've known them in many cases for decades there, and there there were a number of people that I knew were attempting to like it wasn't that everybody was coming to me I I wasn't this kind of you know, lightning, <laughs> lightning rod for for complaining. But people were trying to discuss it with the site director. There were representations, I understand, made to the Northern Ireland Environment Agency. Mm -hmm. And none of that, in the eyes of what I was being told, or by the people I was talking to, none of those people were getting any traction. And I will have to say, and I, I've, I've gone on record before and will again, saying that, Exposing this via an archaeological blog is not the right way to do it. However, there was nobody else that appeared at that time to be listening. Mm -hmm. And so, well, I suppose what I, I should point out, the, the site we're talking about, it's not just another very ordinary site. This is a remarkably well-preserved uh, chronog, uh, mm -hmm. early medieval uh, 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 man-made island. Yeah. Incredible degree of preservation, fantastic uh, site, high status finds, uh, incredible preservation of wood and uh, environmental materials. This was something that, as far as we could see, was being swept under the carpet. Mm -hmm. And at the very least, I thought it deserved further investigation. And mm -hmm. I, I think rather recklessly, put my, my name and reputation on the line. And it was a gamble that paid off. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, in retrospect, yeah, it was it was a huge gamble. The 
the first responses we got were from the archaeological establishment, which was largely, there's nothing to see here. Everything is going fine. Uh, <laughs> and... The further on it went, the more it was clear that things weren't fine. And a, n a number of key meetings took place. And at one of those, there was the then Minister for the Environment who assessed the situation and took what cannot have been an easy decision, which was that on one side, the, all the people that were saying this, everything was perfect were wrong. And that there was a, a, a voice, and please don't think that mm. I'm for one moment saying it was just me. Mm. Uh, quite quickly, a, an advocacy group uh, sprung up, very, very loosely affiliated. And it was myself and a number of other people. Mm. Uh, I kind of became the figurehead of it. <laughs> at some yeah. um, and that, that what we were saying was the actual truth. And the minister really took a took a big gamble on this and said, yeah, this archaeology is really, really important. And he instituted a number of uh, procedural changes that ensured that, well, what we have now is possibly one of the most important excavations of our generation on this island. And yeah, it, fantastic. The, the guy, the, well, you know, the people with the power in this time use that tool for good. And we we have a fantastic uh, excavation because of it. That, that's actually that's a great story. I, I actually I think that's that's a really good story because obviously you know you know in the annals of time in a hundred thousand years time this will be told in a very very different way that the the bright strong archaeologists rose against the tyrannical archaeological <laughs> institute and managed to trash the I'm just hoping that in the movie they they get George Clooney to play me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I think he might need some digging up. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, I think for me, what attracted me to that story uh, in particular was archaeology is usually seen as a very boring, banal, and very non-contentious subject, especially... Well, within archaeology itself, obviously, we all are get a bit angry. Uh, but, like, to the public, it's something that... People don't really think of angry archaeologists, and and I think that well, I mean, what I mean, angry is in a very loving way. I mean, in a kind of archaeologists are passionate, and often their passion it manifests itself in a real frustration with uh, the lack of communication tools that they have with the outs with the public or the outside world. Let's say, you know, outside the dig site, and I think that it's quite interesting that this controversy got such a following so quickly um I, I don't know what's your perspective do you mean well, i i think for me the the biggest insight was a piece that uh stuart rathbone uh, wrote i don't know if you've encountered him he's a fantastic real real excellent thinker in archaeology and he's written a a, a beautiful piece uh, that he gave for me to my, for my blog about archaeological protest in ireland and he takes a number of cases, including the Tara controversy around the, the M3, um, the Viking Waterford uh, Woodstown uh, protests, and the Drum Clay Cronog, and contrasts them and how they were carried out and what they achieved. And it was his insight into it that, I, that really struck me that 
the Drunk Clay Chrono uh, Advocacy Group, basically it was mostly professional archaeologists who treated it as an internal uh, issue. Mm-hmm. We directly went and contacted that politician and that person in power. It mm-hmm. wasn't about being out on the streets waving placards. And perhaps because it, it had a degree of restraint, a degree of professionalism, dare I say it, about it, that we end up having a much more positive result and doing, I think, less long-term damage to relationships within archaeology because of it. That's actually a really uh, interesting um, perspective. Actually, I might I might uh, make sure the listeners get a uh, link to that uh, at the bottom and uh, go through it themselves. It's just, uh, for me, history in Northern Ireland and archaeology in the past in both Northern Ireland and Ireland are a contentious issues just by its very mention. And it's quite interesting to see uh, this response with a very distant past. I mean, there seems to be something definitely quite unifying about the distant past in Ireland compared to, you know, compared to the more contemporary past. I I don't know. What's your... Like... I, to, to address that one, I'd actually leave the drum clay issue to one side because yeah. I said that was mostly archaeologists yeah. talking about one side. But like before I left archaeology, I'd done about 20 years in commercial archaeology. Mm. Most of that, um, I'd say about 15 or so in Northern Ireland. And you get some really, really strange reactions to the distant past mm. that are all seen through the prism of, well, I suppose I still think of it as the recent past, but we are talking about back to 1690. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, they can't let that go, can they? No, we, you know, uh, we can't. I've been on sites, I remember there was one story I got told I was tangentially involved in excavations out by uh, Rathfryland. And Rathfryland? Somewhere out. Think so. uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's got somewhere. a wrath in it. It must be in Northern Ireland somewhere. It's yeah, just, somewhere. you know. Um, but in that case, there, one of the locals came along, saw a patch of burning on the ground, and interpreting it through his particular historical lens, he went, I know what that is. King Billy was coming back from the Boyne. One of his horses must have thrown a shoe. And so the they were sent for somebody, you know, the the blacksmith to, and this is like a total, like some archaeologists going nuts in interpretation. This guy, one little patch of burning, and he had this whole thing about King Billy's horse and a horseshoe. <laughs> and we said, well, we don't know about that, but there is some prehistoric pottery coming out of it. Totally ignored. <laughs> no interest in that whatsoever. There were other cases where we had, I think, it was two uh, ring ditches. Uh, cemeteries yeah. and one of them you know, we were standing right beside it you, these are classic ring, ring ditches mm-hmm. shallow circular uh, uh, ditched enclosures with a central burial with pottery and we, we, we have a pretty good idea of yeah. where these date to but this guy nope these were obviously men that were injured in the Battle of the Boyne. They they died along the way and this is where they were oh buried and no amount of talking ever will uh, you know, get that. The other side of it is, you know, don't don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Lunacy, in terms of an archaeological interpretation, isn't the preserve of one community. Oh no! I, I remember at one stage talking to somebody about it was an Iron Age burial. Mm-hmm. 
and that it had a number of blue glass beads. And the guy's immediate interpretation was, well, that must have been a rosary. And there, oh. this, is, this is from about 200 BC. There were no rosaries. But again, mm. no, that level of um, sanity was, was lacking. You know, there, there are certain prisms that people will not, will, will, will view everything through. Oh yeah, I, 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 you know what? Having you say that actually just reminds me. I've been out of the country far too this long. This is why you left. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, I mean, I'll, I'll say it now. It is why I left. Um, because you know, this, this is, um, this is something. You, I, like, I, I went to school in Belfast, and you know, I had to walk through different parts of Belfast on the daily. Although I won't say which school I went to because then I'll be talked to as a posh prick. But uh, because I've had, I've but had. It would be a Catholic posh prick or a Protestant posh prick. Oh, That's trust me, uh, trust me. My school was in BT nine, so that'll tell you something. Oh, jeez, I've given off, t- I've given away too much information. But uh, I could just say we weren't scum like the inst dogs downtown. So I just, I just say that now. Um, <laughs> any, I, I, if anybody from Northern Ireland is listening to this, you know. And they're from Inst. We won every single time. Um, I that was rugby. I, I don't know if you're big on your sports. Actually, are you a big Look, rugby I'm fan? I'm a short fat man. I've, I have no interest or ability. In no, I'm, 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 I mean watching sports. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. Sort of ninety minutes of people running around. Even that alone tires me. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, obviously, having a large selection of books on archaeology and. You say you're out of archaeology, but I mean now you sound as if uh, you're pretty immersed in it. So what's 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 been your story okay. over the last little bit then? Okay, um, I went to university in the late eighties. I got a university place studying arts, and then picked the courses. I found archaeology from pretty much day one. I loved it. I wanted it to be an archaeologist forever. And that didn't really work out as well as I thought it would. Um, Come 2008, we had the financial crash, everything went to hell. And after that, there was a lot of pressures, financial, everything. The the work we were getting was short, badly paid, poor conditions, everything. And that really took a toll. And there were... A number of issues along the way, but basically in 2011, the end of 2011, I couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was having an effect on me financially, physically, mentally, everything. And I needed to chill out. Mm-hmm. And so I spent some time at home on the dole and my wife said, look, you need to, to think. What are you going to do? And from my perspective, I was well, fat and 40, and mm-hmm. I'd kind of peed off quite a few people in archaeology, and I didn't really see that that was going to be a way forward. So I have ended up retraining in IT, and like a lot of people of my generation, we've drifted out of archaeology with you know, one degree of speed or another. And I have to say, I am probably the happiest I have been in years. But... Uh, I still describe myself, you know, it's on my, my Twitter profile as a recovering archaeologist. And that I always thought was, was a funny description until I was at a conference 
and there was this bunch of archaeologists that were sharing the conference hotel with Alcoholics Anonymous, and it didn't quite seem so funny then. But there is a bit of similarity in there, well, at least for me. Archaeology is a drug, and it, it has, for the largest part of my adult life, it has defined who I am, what I do, and I said I'm really happy in IT, but there's never the same sort of cachet of going to a party and say, oh, what do you do? I'm in IT, <laughs> versus I'm an archaeologist. You know, one, you know, I'm, I'm happily married, have been for years. It's not like I'm out there trying to pull the ladies. <laughs> but, you know, you, you meet people and you see the light go out in their eyes when you say IT. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, it's so, so amazing. It has a cachet yeah. and it has a draw on me. It's, it's in my blood. And I started the, the blog um, just over four years ago now before I left archaeology, thinking the company I was with may or may not go under. And if it did, I needed to have, excuse me, a, a higher public profile. And when the CVs went in for, you know, the next job, yeah. I wanted them to go, hey, I know who he is. Let's give him a job. Yeah. And that that's where it started. Um, just to get my name out there, get a bit better known. And what it, that, that was its intention. What it has actually morphed into is a way for me to remain connected to the type of archaeology I love, mm. which is you know, being passionate about whether it's you know giving out about the mm. the, the, the the chronog, mm. or um, you know I'm currently writing one on the financial health of the uh, the Republic of Ireland's archaeological sector from 2001 to 2014. Or to just go, look, I've taken some photographs of a really cool place and I would like to share these with you. And all those things, I still remain incredibly passionate about it. And blogging is one way that I do that. And it's, I, it, it's a fantastic way for me. It's, it's allowed me to morph off into being an IT guy during the day while still maintaining this really important part of my personality. It's a crutch. It's no more, no less. <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing you saying this because I've been saying from episode one that archaeologists, you're once an archaeologist, always an archaeologist. And there's no one who's an archaeologist who takes their hat off at the end of the day and thinks, no more archaeology for me. Not going to think about it. Nothing. Nothing. I'm going to avoid I've my mind. one person like that. No. One. No, they're uh, not a real archaeologist. That's exactly my point. Um, he once said to me, I do archaeology because it's easy. What? And I smack him. Good, you should have given him a freaking belt around the face. What is he talking about? Oh, my word. Oh, my is, you know, if, if, if you think archaeology is an easy thing, you're not doing it right. Oh, um, that but, makes me blood boil. <laughs> oh dear because the funny thing is obviously like um i like i, I i'm coming more from a well i came came come came to archaeology from a science background which meant that which which funnily enough has completely been balanced off by my absolute love of post-processionalism to the extreme like I, i'm saying like Shanks and Tilly and like Hodder are like my three idols when it comes to archaeological theory. I love, love this kind of like 
uh, way of destabilizing the authority of the past, in a sense to de destabilize people who use that authority for bad intentions. I mean, what my problem is, is that a lot of the time, the reason why things get picked up and that they have a certain pastness, like an aura, is because there's an inherent or an assumed authority by society in the past because of its pastness. And like, I, I want to kind of see if we can subvert a little bit of that authority to better ha put the means of production of the past in the hands of many different people. I'm a little tiny, tiny, tinsy bit Marxist in that sense. And that's scary for some people. And I like to be scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, on Friday last, I was invited by... Um, who was it? Uh, Nick Maxwell of Archaeology mm -hmm. Ireland. Down to be part of a history... Ireland Hedge School mm -hmm. in Rathmichael in South County, Dublin. And I was asked a question about uh, about archaeological theory. And I, I'm afraid to say I've struggled with theory all my life in that mm -hmm. I came, you know, I, I, I went to, to study in Galway, which wasn't the cutting edge of archaeology then that it is now. I don't think oh, it's the it's cutting edge of anything. now. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Students, but no, seriously, it's it's a fantastic mm. department now. But back when I was there, it was kind of a bit of archaeology with quite a lot of art history, and there were no well, there was, there was one uh, research excavation that was carried out by the department that you had to be invited to. There was certainly no introduction to anything like theory. Archaeology was just what you did and. Mm. I remember being at a lecture given by Professor Charles Orser, an American archaeologist, and he was basically kind of doing archaeological theory 101 and held up a photograph and went, what is this? Asked the head of the department, he went, well, it's a plate, and was then flummoxed with the question of, but how do you know it's a plate? And a yeah. lot of the students kind of were on the side of the prof because we'd all been rather heavily inculcated against, you know, these nasty theorists. <laughs> and I, I remember once finding a book by Shanks and Tilly in the library, which had a very, very special sound of creak as you opened it, because nobody ever had before. Um, I'm not daft enough to think that theory doesn't imbue absolutely <laughs> everything I do. However, my problem is that I, I'm not... Mm -hmm. sufficiently aware of my own biases to mm -hmm. actually list them out and categorize them <laughs> and understand properly where I'm coming mm -hmm. from. Um, but I am reliably informed that, uh, yeah, my, my work is full of theory. Everybody's <laughs> is. No, I know. And, and this, <laughs> is, uh, this is a really funny thing for me is because actually I find myself on the extreme end, even among the, the, the three BSCs and the 20 MAs, I, I find myself quite extreme in theory as well because, like, to me, it's about subverting the 
you know, the constant kind of requirements of archaeology on, oh, well, you know, that's nice and all, but let's just get down to the digging, let's just get down to the analysis. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> just just wait a minute. Let's, uh, what about the theory of, you know, the scientific method is something that I hold very close to my heart. It's a great great tool, but it's a tool, you know, nonetheless, and it fits in with everything else. Um, I, I did uh, trace mercury analysis as part of my dissertation work. It was uh, to establish a link between mercury levels um, and dietary sources. So um, so I did a lot of very high-tech, very specialist uh, analysis, but um, I realized very quickly that my methodology in that was very limited, you know, in the, in the whole scheme of things. I wasn't really doing anything new, and that was kind of, that was kind of upsetting, but, you know, you got to do your undergrad dissertation, right? <laughs> yeah, you you got to get through that hurdle first before you yeah. can go on to do something actually interesting. I know exactly. Uh, I, not to say it wasn't interesting, but it, 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 like it's not what I'm very interested in. I like I think I think I'm kind of on the side of uh, public archaeology. I think that's getting closer and closer to where. <laughs> That's like the least the least important job in archaeology, eh? <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> it's 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 funny because you were mentioning earlier that the archaeology books you like have a lot of carbon dates in them. And of course, the most under misunderstood thing in the entire world is radiocarbon dating. I was at a wedding last weekend and somebody heard I was an archaeologist and they were like so, how do you describe... Describe to me how carbon dating works. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay, let's, let's, let's try this. Let's not just brush it off. Let's, let's try this. Okay. Right. Carbon dating obviously has carbon in it. There are three flavors of carbon. Right? There's the normal flavor. That's carbon-12. There's an exciting radioactive flavor, carbon-13. But we'll not deal with that right now. And then finally, we got the most exciting flavor. It's carbon-14. But it's really, really rare, really difficult to make. It only gets made up in the atmosphere. So what happens is everything picks up both vanilla, carbon-12, and the exciting carbon-14. And the ratio of these two things give us an idea of um, how old something is. Now, it's not that simple. There's a few little things to... Um, you have to measure it against a special graph because carbon goes up and down in history. And uh, yeah, when you measure those ratios, the smaller the carbon-14 level, the older it is. I should have got that right. <laughs> I, 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 I might, was that all right? Was that all right? <laughs> that's pretty good. Now, you see, I listened to that and the first thing that's going through my head was... I was invited to give a talk oh, a couple of years ago now about radiocarbon dating because I've got this reputation as actually knowing something about it. And I tried to dissuade them uh, from asking me and to actually get them to disinvite me on the basis that what I felt they really needed was somebody with a physics background. Because I think it was Rutherford, at least it's attributed to Rutherford, the physicist, that there's two types of science. There's physics and everything else is stamp collecting. <laughs> and my, and I'm very much of the stamp collecting end of it. Like I, mm -hmm. my archeology span is from an arts background and I 
I got it into my head, I think it must be about 2006, so, well, heading on for a decade ago, that I was go- I was in the process of writing up a site, and it was uh, one of the ubiquitous mm-hmm. Irish uh, Burt Mounds or Philip the Fia. And how do you describe these, or how do you go about comparing and contrasting them? Oh, it was a slightly you know, off-circular pit. Well, <laughs> do we find other ones? And of course, when you when you go by morphology, mm-hmm. you get you know things that could be thousands of years apart, certainly hundreds. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if we had? You know, I've got a couple of radiocarbon dates from this site. Wouldn't it be nice to say, well, okay, it doesn't quite look like this, but you know what? This one's actually contemporary. Yeah. And it struck me that what I, I also knew that in the, the, the coming months that I would have another uh, Burnt Mound site to write up of a slightly different date. But wouldn't it be good to be able to do that as well? So this resource doesn't exist. Well, I've been buying books since I started in archaeology. Mm-hmm. I have an entire room of my house converted to being a library with uh, three walls covered in shelves. And, well, that's where my baseline data has to come from. And I started with one volume. And like everybody's favorite, I put it into an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> and the amount of people that call it a... a a database and it really rankles me I, I think it's lovely that people even know that i do this <laughs> but it's not a database it's just a list <laughs> and but you can do an awful lot of things with a yeah. list and you can find interesting things and i've been trying to develop an idea of creating uh, radiocarbon landscapes mm-hmm. so if you find a burial it's all very easy to to find other burials even other burials of the same mm-hmm. day but what I'm trying to do is write narratives that go you've got a burial of 1000 BC in Galway well what was happening well okay let's look across this island what other burials were going on around that time what are their similarities what are their dissimilarities but also you know burials aren't aren't the extent of life they're they're, uh, you know domestic structures ritual structures weird stray finds that just happen to be dated and normal, shall we say, uh, research pathways won't bring bring you to this data or this data to you. It's only when you go, well, here's my core date. Give me 30 radiocarbon years on each side of that. What do we find? And it does throw up some interesting things. Admittedly, there's not many people that are vastly interested in it. And nobody's breaking down my door to give me money to do it. <laughs> but I, I think it's an interesting thing to do. No, that's amazing. And, and radiocarbon landscape is an amazing post-metal album name. Like, I'm going to take that. That is fantastic. That is, oh, up there. Radio Carbon Landscape. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and obviously this is... Sorry, I'm still laughing at the idea that there's post-metal. Yeah, post-metal, like um, Isis, the, the band, not the group. Um, Neurosis. I heard the there's also red sparrow it's sorry i'm there's certain music genres that i really quite like so <laughs> trust me post metal is the most normal of music genres that i know <laughs> i'm afraid i'm sort of classic rock dylan stones grateful dead <laughs> oh dear oh dear 
I know, I'm sorry, there's, there's no help. A child of your time. A child of your time. I'm a child of my parents' time. <laughs> child in Time, released by Deep Purple, uh, I think 1976. Ah, see? <laughs> but when I was... Everybody else's parents were worried about like you know, sort of the de- devilish pop music they were listening to. My parents were going, "He's listening to an awful lot of Dylan." <laughs> that's not that's not normal. Do you know I I was raised right on the Rocky Horror Picture Show soundtrack and a German punk band called Die Toten Hosen. Uh, because my uh, my 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 mother's uh, German and I'm half German. Obviously, the better half of me is Northern Irish. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, honestly, I've had a weird music t- upbringing as well. Um, I started getting back into, like, I was starting to look at, listen to really, really well-produced stuff from the 70s, actually. You know, like, you know, um, you know when music's really well put together? Like, the, the mixing's really done really well? I love that, and... Uh, that's why I really appreciate your music. And that's why there's actually a lot of the bands you've mentioned. Uh, some of their remastered stuff is actually really, really good. Um, just because I remember listening to, who was it? It was uh, Led Zeppelin. Um, I can't remember which album it was. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, really nice to listen to. And uh, are you a fan of Pink Floyd? Oh, that's okay. I thought you said, are you a fan of Pink? And I thought... <laughs> No, <laughs> no, Pink Floyd. <laughs> yes, yeah, big Pink Floyd fan. Um, really wished I had been able to see him live in their heyday. Yeah, but um, like you know, you're grew up around Belfast. I presume you've been up to um Belfast Zoo. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know the Floral Hall, this beautiful Art Deco gem that's falling apart. I love Art Deco. Yes, of course I know that. But you you know the building I'm yes, talking I about. Yes, I do. It's eyesore at the beginning of. The, uh, the the zoo uh, Floyd played there in uh, in 67 and it's just one of these things I liked it as a building anyway but knowing that it was kind of like a hallowed ground <laughs> just, just incredible beauty in my <laughs> stop laughing I love Art Deco I really it's an underappreciated building like for i love it because it's just so like i I just love the structure to it the big thick lines like i i i I, I, like when it comes to um buildings i like things that are that stand out you know um especially actually i've also got a soft spot for um soviet uh (laughs) building structures the kind of blocky almost brutalist kind of brutalist, I, yeah. I love brutalism because it upsets people I think it's probably the other well actually <laughs> I, I, I adore <laughs> no I, I adore um, art deco buildings but it's like a lot of modern art I can appreciate it but I don't necessarily you know either want the art hanging on my walls or want to live in one of those buildings um I I grew up in a house that had a partially flat roof, and that is kind of one of the the trademarks yeah. or potential trademarks of deck. And my parents had nothing but problems <laughs> yeah, with. It's... I've lived in a house in when I first came to Belfast that had a flat roof, and it was horrible. It you know it wasn't a deco house. It was just like a a little terraced house with a, a flat mm. uh, extension. And these 
these things they, they can they can put you off you know <laughs> well i i think i i just like things that uh discomfort other people that's probably why i have an addiction to death metal <laughs> <laughs> have we are, are we not so far past the time that the deco made people uncomfortable i don't know because i think has it not become accepted uh, well i i think generally people uh, have your opinion on it oh it's all right but i wouldn't live in it no, it's. I think it's still, it's still. Still, um, I think it's. It's uh, no Art Deco is probably still admired from a distance. Um, Glasgow is actually a lovely city architecturally. If you've ever been, I've only been through Glasgow once, and I was I was actually on a bus to uh, to Edinburgh, and I fell asleep. I woke up and. The first thing I saw was we were crossing over the the river, and I saw the armadillo building. Oh yeah! <laughs> and just in this moment of being half awake, suddenly took fright, going, "How long have I been on the bus? That's Sydney Opera House." <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh, the moment. Yes. yes. <laughs> but it, it... but you know you're you're half awake. Uh-huh. The sanity yeah. isn't completely <laughs> enveloped around you just yet. But yeah, that's um, that's unfortunately my my only uh, encounter with Glasgow so far. It's it's just funny because Aberdeen is grey, and I mean grey, grey. Like all the buildings are grey. Every I live in a grey house, which is on a grey street, which is surrounded by other grey buildings because it's all made of granite. Everything is grey. It's. I grew up in Galway City, um, or a lot of my university years in Galway City, and everything is limestone. It's all grey as well. So I know what you're talking about. But you see, Belfast has these lovely red brick um, buildings and structures and has lots of different uh, things in it, which, I mean, I, I do also feel the architecture some places is a little bit, um, it's a little bit dated, let's say. <laughs> I don't know. I think... And I've said this before to, to friends who have taken a while to get the idea, but Belfast City Centre architecturally is amazing so long as you add a single-decker bus. Oh, right, yeah. And what I mean by this is, stand on the other side of the road, have the ground floor view blocked by a bus, and look at everything <laughs> above. And there are some beautiful buildings that have been wrecked for shop front. Yeah. And, you know, it, they're the same ugly, ubiquitous, homogenous, <laughs> you know, I have nothing against boots, you know, but they're everywhere. Um, I have nothing against, you know, Burger King, McDonald's, but they're everywhere. And I don't mind them being in purpose-built mm. little, you know, shacks, you know, out, out in uh, somewhere, somewhere that isn't an architectural gem. But when you've got one in the centre of, of Belfast, in a building that should be prized as a, as a gem, then that's not right. So put a bus in front of it, look at what's above it. You know, it, it gets... It, that's, that's perfect. I, it gets you out of a lot. Right, everybody going to Belfast, remember to bring a bus in your pocket and then you can just, like, inflate it and put it out in front. <laughs> Even a small piece of art that you just hold it up. Oh my... Could you imagine... <laughs> Like all these people like going to Belfast, like holding this up. Actually, you know, do 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 it sneakily. Just hold up your phone. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody will think you're so self-involved. You're taking a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I, you, you do know that word means. You're not that old, eh? 
Selfie. Pardon? <laughs> Selfie. Oh, What's yes, that? Yes, yes. <laughs> Self-portrait. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, uh, me, I just dropped my monocle. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear it's uh it's it's one of those things that like our archaeology is obviously always moving at a quite a rapid rate i mean um there's been a lot of stuff recently like i i've interviewed twice on my show andrew reinhardt the archeo gamer uh who runs his own blog called archeo gaming and does is actually starting to do research in that as well and there's a lot of other people i know who uses 3d mod- modeling um and i've talked to them and everything i mean obviously you've got a bit of knowledge in it i mean do you think it will ever intersect with archaeology just ever so slightly for you i mean past l- making lists well yes um the the job i See, I was originally trained uh, as uh, as a programmer, as a developer, and it turns out I wasn't as good at that as I'd hoped, um, by which I mean I kind of sucked at it, and my life was pretty miserable for a while, but I'm with a really big company, and they said, look, you didn't work in that role. That's nobody's fault. Let's find you something else. So they put me on to doing process audits, which in some respects, is not all that different from what I used to do on site of checking people's context sheets and making sure everything was in the right order and you know, that sort of stuff. But the big businesses like metrics and they like graphs. And I found that the skills that I had with drawing bar charts in Excel weren't as universal in the world of IT as I thought they were. And so... I found, yeah, I, I can't shake your head that. <laughs> well, when, when I was leaving my development team, you know, I, I worked with some really, really skilled developers. Mm. And they were saying to me, I will look, man, best of luck in the, the audit team, but I, it's not a role that would work out for me. I couldn't do it. And I met my, my team manager and he said, look, you know, what skills do you have here that would be useful to us? How are you with, you know, written English? with excel with powerpoint and when you know yeah why why not <laughs> of course i know these things and yeah they're they're not as universally um available as, as skills as i thought they were however you know the, the, everybody's looking for the best way and the most interactive way to uh, to to bring the metrics you know if you can't measure it you can't manage it and every every manager wants their metrics and I've been given access to a rather fantastic tool called Tableau. So I'm, I've been learning how to do this in uh, in my, my workplace. But I've, I've, I come home at night and I'm kind of subverting it by taking this tool that is essentially meant for uh, your profit and loss, mm-hmm. your sales and all those important business things. And the first project I did uh, was to look at the spread of uh, early printing presses in Western Europe. And all you need was you know, a little bit of data and it can graph it. You can turn out interesting uh, charts that you can then, as the, the consumer of them rather than the developer, you can go in and you can play around with these and you can get the, the insights you want. So I've been doing stuff like that, um, more historical based than archaeological. Mm-hmm. But what I was talking to you earlier about that I'm looking at um, some uh, financial data relating to Irish... Um, archaeological consultancies. Yes. 
that I'm using Tableau to to display and get the information together so that you can I, I can write my narrative about it, but also make this available to other people mm-hmm. so that they can go, well, I only want to see between these mm-hmm. two years and for this set of companies. Yeah. And I, I want to I don't want to know about their you know their, their their liabilities. I just want to see their cash in the bank. So I think yeah, there there's interesting things out there that you can take tools from the IT world that are very business tools and well like I said you know slightly subvert them for archaeological ends that's that's really cool but obviously there's always a there's always a but wait a minute you know uh, this can, you know there's always problems you know this is where your theory comes in but uh, what I'm saying what I'd like to say is that that's actually really it is really really cool to see one thing that works in one area uh, being put into another. I mean, I've heard people describe archaeology as the magpie subject because it sees the shiny objects and other things and says, "Oh, I like that." Would you agree with that? Um, I've never used the term uh, magpie. Scavenger is what I've called archaeology. <laughs> there is nothing, absolutely nothing, used in archaeology that we've really invented for ourselves. <laughs> and you know, from being out on site, you know, nobody has ever went. Here is the, an archaeological trowel invented by archaeologists for archaeology. Mm. Here is the WHS four-inch pointed trowel. <laughs> the one thing that typifies what people's impressions of archaeology are all about, it's not ours. We, we bought it, we, we, well, <laughs> we, we've nicked it. Well, it depends on who you talk uh, to. Wheelbarrows, the idea of pro form you know, mm. and... The, the technologies, even, you know, radiocarbon dating wasn't designed with archaeology in mind. I'm not 100% sure about dendrochronology. I think that might have come from archaeology. Way. But I'm open to correct. One thing. <laughs> one thing. But, yeah, it is, it is one thing. But all, all these really cool mm. developments, like there, there are so many people out there that are using commercially available bits and pieces from... Um, I've got a, a friend who's doing really incredible work just using Google Earth to find new sites in Ireland. Uh, obviously, there's been a high-profile case with uh, potential sites being identified in, in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And there, there are all these things. Um, I think, yeah, gaming archaeology, you know, there, there's a lot. You know, anything you, you can put your mind to, you can take that and you can use it. And yeah, archaeology, I think that's one of its strengths. It's kind of like the English language. It kind of goes, oh, that's an interesting foreign <laughs> word. We'll be having you. Yeah. And drags it in kicking and screaming. Um, and so, yeah, there, there, there's a, I think archaeology should never be ashamed of the fact that, mm-hmm. yeah, we scavenge from, from other disciplines. Uh, in terms of theory, there's very little, in my experience, archaeological theory that is generated within archaeology itself. As a lot of us will, you know, here's something we took from sociology, here's something from ge- geography, mm-hmm. and, you know, more power to us for being that mm-hmm. adaptable. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, unfortunately, see it as a weakness, especially outsiders to archaeology um by which i mean people who haven't spent enough time around archaeologists of course <laughs> but I, I think it is it is one of these things that like people say well what's a you know what can archaeology you know do for everybody what what, what can archaeology bring us if it doesn't create anything out of itself but yet these novel ways are 
are fantastic because these are ways that we can then reciprocally use in other ways. I mean, I, I like, I, like I've always thought to myself, well, what about the archaeology of, I don't know, like thinking archaeologically about things that are not necessarily archaeological. Like, I I posed to somebody, what about the archaeology of brushing teeth? Because ultimately, brushing teeth doesn't leave a trace on the workspace that you use, but it does leave a t- trace or a lack of a trace on your own teeth. It's something very physical that builds up over time, over years. And I mean, think about it like this. In the past, we didn't really have the same level of toothbrushing as we do now. And obviously, when we look at teeth in the past, we can use them to like age and etc. etc. I mean, but the problem is, what if you try to age someone by their regularly brushed teeth now? You know, what what are the like? With what other subject would that ever come up as an idea, like as a thought? Yeah, I think one of you know, I I, I suppose if we yeah. just can throw this back slightly to me. Uh, I w- when I was pottering around in this office uh, back in you know, late 2011, early 2012, going, what skills do I have? What have I got from archaeology that I can actually use anywhere else? And I'll be honest, I, w- I went through quite a depressing time going, not, not a hell of a lot, <laughs> right? And I... I eventually got rid of them, but I did keep them around for years, even though they were like a, a cankerous sore. They, this stack of rejection letters for entry-level positions, where I just didn't, I didn't meet the grade. Um, you know, for you know, very, very, you know, nothing wrong with the jobs. I needed a job. I was going for anything, but nobody wanted me uh, because none of my my skills mattered. But. I think it's that archaeological approach to thinking to, and it's not exclusive to archaeology, but it's just asking weird questions, thinking rigorously about data. I think there, there, there are things that pay off there. And so for, for me, it's, it's worked out. And I think it's time we started tracking down where the people who've been in archaeology for a while and they've left mm-hmm. the profession, where they've gotten to and how... The archaeological skills they've they've built up, how those have helped them, or indeed hindered them, I don't know. I think it's something that that's certainly worth a thought. Yeah, and actually, that's one of the things that uh, professional bodies in archaeology in uh, UK and Ireland are something very focused on. Because I've been told time and time again that there was a great exodus of uh, archaeologists, and it's left a bit of a vacuum at the moment because development has started up again. No, I mean, like, there there are people who have left and not uh, not everybody's leaving has been voluntary. You know, a lot of the time they've been forced out, like yourself, forced out because of um, changes in financial things. But I think I think you've got a you've got a good idea there about uh, checking up on people. I mean, no, no, not checking yeah. up on people, but seeing <laughs> see how these because this is this is. Outreach. This plays into like the value of archaeology as a degree, the value of archaeology in general in the public, which is something that I think is very underplayed. You know, Um, I think that that's one of the things that people say to me. I was just digging in the dirt. I'm like, I can't. I don't have enough words to explain why it's not digging in the dirt. 
I can't say it. <laughs> but I, I usually, I think what for me as the anarchaeologist, it's always very important to make outrageous statements uh, because then people are like, well, what's he talking about? He's just saying outrageous statements or is there something behind this? Like I like to say anthropology is archaeology. Uh, or what else do I like saying to people? Um, oh man, this is this is the level of crazy. You could be a Republican candidate for president. <laughs> Ar- every archaeology is everything, or it is nothing. Well, I used to <laughs> enjoy uh, winding up a a doctor a friend of mine and saying, "Look, you just you know, cure people. Mm-hmm. I'm an archaeologist. I bring people back from the dead, <laughs> and it's love it. That's beautiful." <laughs> Well, in in some ways we do, you know. Yeah. If I had a limb hanging off, I know who I'd want. Yeah. But you know, th- there is mm-hmm. there is a an unfortunate degree of worthiness that is associated with archaeology and otherworldliness. That well, you mustn't be quite all there if you're prepared to be that dirty, filthy, poorly paid, and generally looked down upon. Mm-hmm. You know, you're. You know, there's there are these ideas in uh, the 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 Irish mythologies of these people that are are crazy. They're touched by the hand of God, and you they're somehow outside of society, and you don't want them in your house. But they're very very important people that should be respected. And archaeology and archaeologists are a little like that. <laughs> you know, you see, you know, Time Team is a remarkably uh, res- respected or was a remarkably respected uh, TV show, even though I despised it. Um, <laughs> you and me both, brother. I, you and me was, both. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it was banned in my house. My my wife said I wasn't allowed to watch it anymore. I just screamed obscenities at the TV too much. But the amount of people you'd meet that non-archaeologists who loved the mm. show and thought really highly of it, but at the same time we're kind of glad that they didn't make those career choices that they ended up in a career in archaeology <laughs> because they like, mm. you know, foreign travel, regular meals, yeah. um, you know, stuff like that. No. Uh, so, yeah, archaeology does does have a strange place in, in terms of value. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think one of the solidifying moments for me was realizing that all archaeologists, young or old, of any gender love bad jokes. I don't know if this is a common thing over there, but I have yet to meet an archaeologist who doesn't like a good joke or a good pun, and is like who's ready to make them as well as lovingly receive these wonderful jokes. I, I have heard so many... Like, for example, archaeologists will date anything. Archaeologists do it in holes in the ground. Oh, no. Archaeology, a life in ruins. That's the best you got for me? Oh, oh, oh God. Bring, bring it on. Bring it on. I forgot. <laughs> oh. but Archaeologists, we, did, we, we work by trial and era. Oh, no. Okay, you win. You you win. Oh, that is... I've not heard that one before. That is amazing. <laughs> See, oh, I knew it. I, 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 I knew, well, the thing is, in my family, um, my, my dad was a purveyor of terrible jokes. Um, but then again, 
while he ended up as a professional accountant, when he was a kid, he worked, uh, um, well, his school's Latin master uh, marched a bunch of them off into a, a Suffolk uh, orchard, which mm -hmm. sounds like the beginning of a really terrible story. But in <laughs> fact, they were going to excavate a Roman villa. And when I was a kid, uh, the, the the photographs that my dad took of the excavation were one of the things that inspired me. And I just thought, well, kind of the, the bad jokes thing or something that I got from my dad. But I think p possibly genetic disposition, predisposition yeah. uh, bolstered by a career in archaeology. <laughs> well, I, 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 I think it just ties into the whole uh, otherworldly thing. I think it's something you have to have. You have to have a good sense of humor to hang around the dead so often. I definitely have to have a t-shirt that says I, I dig dead people. I'll take that one from Sixth Sense. I'll, uh... Uh, my wife once got me a t-shirt with a fake email address on it uh, that was robert at buriedeadthings.com Oh. <laughs> That's quite... I like that. <laughs> oh, so one of my favourite t-shirts at the moment is by a company called uh, Last Exit to Nowhere. They do one that says Belloc. You know Belloc? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you get these from? Where do you get these from? Well, like I said, the, the, there's, a, there's uh, this wonderful place. It is um, Last Exit to Nowhere. They do fantastic shirts. Um, and there's another one that they've... Um, oh, what do you call the guy from Highlander? Um, oh, no! Yeah, it's it's so and so's antiques. <laughs> oh dear! And it's oh. got a picture of a sword across it. It's brilliant. Oh wow! But like honestly, novelty T-shirts, bad puns. I mean, this is this is archaeology one hundred and one, guys. <laughs> trying to think what T-shirt I've got. Oh no, on. no! It's, it's, uh... Oh, he's going he, he, Superman on me right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually it's a uh, one from the British Museum. <laughs> oh, that imperialist establishment, which I don't really like. Yes. Oh, jeez. Do you know it's my it's my goal one day to be banned from the British Museum for <laughs> for being anti-British Museum. One day, one day, I'll 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 get up there. <laughs> the best I've got so far is I got uh, once kicked out of River Island, the the clothes shop. What? No, uh, I asked. I asked too loudly, apparently standing right beside the general manager. So, other than hookers, who shops here? Oh. So I was asked to leave. Oh, you rebel, you! <laughs> oh, dear. So if people want to find your wonderful blog, how would they go about finding it? Oh, uh, Google uh, Robert M. Chapel Archaeologist. That's... Um, and. <laughs> Pretty much all the, the, the lies and all the rumors and supposition, they're all true. Uh, so I, I'm there on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and just writing because I enjoy it. Yeah. And love, like I said, I, there on the 22nd, so like just a few days ago, my blog hit four years of age mm -hmm. and it's got heading for 290,000 reads. Mm -hmm. And as I always say, it's not the Huffington Post, but it's... It's close. It's close. It's just, it's just a little bit. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, but it's there are people out there that, that read it. They seem to like it. At the end of the day, I write this for myself. And so long as I'm happy writing and there's 
anybody out there that's interested in reading, um, I'll keep on going. Awesome. So there you are. And uh, we can find you on Twitter as well. Do you remember your handle? Uh, yes, S R M Chapel. That's C H A P P L E. Uh, so it's as simple yeah. as that. You use uh, Twitter a lot. Are you big Twitter Twitterian Twitter. I'm not sure of the term. <laughs> Twat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. In cold words. <laughs> um, I use Twitter quite a bit, but mostly because. Um, I have got it accidentally uh, hooked up to my Facebook account. I'm I love Facebook. I absolutely adore it. Um, wow. I um, you are behind no, the I'm times. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, next thing you're going to be telling me like live journal is had its day. Uh, <laughs> okay, I just let you. I'll just let you. <laughs> No, no, live journal. <laughs> the it's wave of the reason. internet. Web 2.0. <laughs> What's that? It's on the horizon, right? Oh. It'll be there one day. <laughs> no, um, no I, I'm a desperately antisocial person. I'm, I'm terrible at keeping up relationships, you know, professional. Um, even my own family used to hear me, from me from, for ages and ages. And then one day I found social media and went, this is cool. And have taken to us in uh, in an entirely inappropriate way um which is why i spend time hiding away in my office away from you know the rest of my family that i should actually be interacting with but you know it's what i do instead you interact with strangers on the internet <laughs> let's face it i'm a stranger on the internet you're interacting with me ah done bingo it's not it's not like slot roulette or something <laughs> No, that's chat roulette. But anyway, I'll I'll leave you that. Anyway, we're going, right. <laughs> we're going to wrap up the show. Thank you very very much for. Uh... Us are going to hell in every religion. That's how oh, don't worry, I'm already there. I've already signed that sheet. Um, anyway, thank you very much for coming on the show and having a wee chat with me and just talking. You know, that's that's what I appreciate. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to to have been asked. It's um... trust me, it's no I, big I... thing. <laughs> well, I have to say, I every time I get an invite like this, my first reaction is to say, no, no, I don't want to do it. And I'm trying to be, well, pretend to be a better human as I get older and try to embrace some of these challenges. And yeah, talking to strangers um, is not easy for me. And I do have a lot of difficulty with it, but I made the decision that, yeah, I'm going to do this. I've never, never done something like this before. So, yeah, um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to push it. <laughs> wow, you fooled me, man. You fooled me. Like, you, you have problems talking to Take people. Take a while to get warmed up. You know what? You better listen to this. You better listen to this back. And you just listen to the first bit and see just that you came out the door <laughs> rolling like seriously i i don't believe you when you say you have a problem talking to people i don't believe you don't believe you the the, the, the first <laughs> now you're making me all self-conscious you know mm-hmm. i'll turn into rain man by the time it's over oh <laughs> gotta see what <laughs> <laughs> oh dear what don't don't you worry don't want you worry um this will not be used against you but it will be up on the oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) and of course yeah that's the other side of it making all this public but yeah no the serious part of this is of course thank you very much for asking me um it's i know this is kind of 
this started as a conversation a long, long time ago, and you know, so much kind of got thrown up in, mm-hmm. in between. But I'm really glad we ha- we've had the opportunity to do this. And um, yeah, if, if for nothing else, I learned how to install Skype on my machine. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't worry. We're we're managing the Anarchaeologist podcast to ta- teach old dogs new tricks. And if you want to hear more from the Anarchaeologist podcast, remember you can catch us on iTunes. Uh, we'll be shortly migrating to the Archaeology Podcast Network full time. So my website will just be a blog, me rambling about absolutely useless things. If you're interested in any of the other shows, there's Archaeological Fantasies, which is about. Uh, pseudoscience, pseudo-archaeology, and the rest of it, done by our famous, kind of famous author, Ken Fader, with uh, host Sarah, uh, leading you through many conversations and interesting pieces about what people say about weird archaeology. In the meantime, if you're coming to, if you were at EAA Glasgow, it's going to be the future. <laughs> if you were at EA in Glasgow, it was amazing to come see, uh, meet you and see so many faces. And we'll definitely have some of the conversations that we recorded there up soon. So keep listening, uh, keep digging, and we'll see you out in the field. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Thank you.